from the Southeast Florida studios of the law firm Trip Scott in Fort Lauderdale. This is Politics and Sunshine, a continuing series of interviews with local and national subject matter experts tackling the issues that make you stand up. In this episode, Trip Scott's CEO Ed Poswali talks to money expert and TV personality Steve Grasso. Here's your host, Ed Poswali. Today, we're joined by Steve Grasso, the CEO of Grasso Global Inc. Steve began his career working on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in 1993. And since 1999, he's worked as an institutional sales trader, working effectively with some of the largest global mutual funds, pension funds, insurance companies, and hedge funds. As an executive of the New York Stock Exchange floor governor, he was actively participated in various New York Stock Exchange committees over the years, whose work included allocating new listings to market-making firms and developing standardized tests for continuing education for the floor community. Steve also advises many corporate boards using his vast Wall Street knowledge and experience. He and his partners at Grosso Global have over 70 years of collective experience. They help corporations better manage and operate every facet of their business. You probably know him through his longstanding commentary on Fast Money on CNBC. Steve, welcome. Hey, thanks, Ed. That's a mouthful. I, I feel like I, you know you, you want those bios to be really deep and have some texture to them. And when you listen to them, I was fascinated at how much I've done already. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, look, you know, you're still looking pretty young. So there you go. I mean, that's uh, that's great. I, I mean, I appreciate but- it. I've seen I've seen tremendous change within the marketplace. I was on the floor for just under 30 years, and I love the floor. It's an iconic spot. You know, growing up half in the Bronx, half in Westchester, the floor was like Yankee Stadium for me. When I walked onto that floor for the first time, it was like walking out of the dugout of Yankee Stadium. The amount of history and the the amount of things that that floor has seen was, to me, just a little bit overwhelming. And I, and, and I was lucky enough to have my career start there and, and basically proceed from there. And it's changed a lot since you started. I mean, I'm sure because the old style about how you executed a trade is certainly different today than it was 30 years ago. Yeah, when when I first got down to the floor, we were pen and pad, and we had runners on the floor running our our notes back and forth to our partners in the booths, and it was something spectacular to see. I think the count when I entered the floor was about 5,000 people on that trading floor. So if you can imagine, that was a a, a little bit of a, a village on that trading floor, and it wasn't just people for the sake of having people. Everyone knew everyone on that floor, which was pretty impressive. And the amount of of, uh, generosity when a a fellow member or fellow member's friend came into some sort of bad luck, they used to pass around a big wheel around a big garbage can and they'd raise money in an hour that people couldn't do in months now. It must have been just tremendous energy on the floor when everybody was performing their specific roles. Yeah, we, we used to, the amount of volume that we were capable of trading obviously was a lot lower when it was just pen and paper and there was the, the, the human element of counting it. So the amount of volume and transactions that we did held in comparison to when we went to basically having an iPad on the floor, but it was, you know, speed and accuracy of a computer, but the thinking brain of the human being is always the best marketplace. And they called it the hybrid market. 
But the amount of things and volatility and situations that we all collectively saw was unbelievable. So let me switch gears on you and and ask your view of uh, we had the State of the Union this week. President Biden delivered it. How do you think that State of the Union impacted the marketplace? You know, it's it's amazing. I, I've I've always been a political junkie, and that that stems from the time I was literally 12, 13 years old. I, I was bit by the political bug. I used to like watching debates. I, I used to love seeing Ronald Reagan back in the day, and with his famous comment, "There you go again with Jimmy Carter." <laughs> These were different statements from different people and different parties, and you know, it was living on the East Coast. He always felt like, you know, I was a little bit of an anomaly with my with my political views. Uh, my dad was an entrepreneur, and I watched every state of the union that I was alive for. I'll leave myself open to be checked on that, but I believe I've seen the majority or almost all of the state of the unions. And when you realize that the state of the union is largely a political state, and it's usually from one party or another them listing their accomplishments and what they'd like to do going forward. So you really take it with a grain of salt. And when you hear that comment about energy companies, when the president said, well, they're going to be around, we're going to need them for 10 more years. That's in stark contrast to when he was running for president, where he said he was going to put them all out of business. So I think that was the most market moving thing for me where these energy companies were told they were basically going to be put out of business. But why on earth would any CEO or any industry sit down with a political party or person that has the goal of putting them out of business? So I think that was a shock to the market, to be honest with you. Yeah. You know, the State of the Union is in a large part pageantry, and we don't have a lot of that in our country. You know, we don't have a queen. We don't have the royals. We have a little pageantry around the State of the Union, but presidents lay out their view of the world. And President Biden really did go after corporations for profiting from the pandemic and went after some sort of, you know, suggested a minimum tax for wealthy, quadrupling the tax on corporate stock buybacks, et cetera. Do you think that shook the market in any way? You know, the market is a pretty smart, effective place. It it always, I I always like to say uh, money flows to the most accommodative path. It's almost like water. And markets are always affected when a president or an administration goes after certain aspects of wealth. And, you know, it's the catchphrases. The Democratic Party likes to use pay your fair share. Well, we all know that the rich in this country pay their fair share. Corporations pass on those taxes. They never pay them. So they pass on those taxes to a large extent to the people of the country. So when you say I'm going to tax the corporations, all that means is that you're going to tax everyone who's a consumer of that corporation's goods or services. So that never really does anything for the party other than the rhetoric that they want to get over to the masses. So that's one thing that I see. For as long as I've been in this business, whenever you tax more of something, right? Ronald Reagan said it, you actually get less back. So if you give somebody, the rich or corporations, a fair tax, they'll pay a fair tax. They won't pay an exorbitant tax. We've heard congressmen and senators say that there should be a 70% effective tax rate, federal tax rate for individuals. Who on earth 
thinks that's a good idea? Who on earth thinks that's really going to get passed? I hope I will never live to see the day where there's a 70% marginal tax on the highest income. income. The economy does seem strong. We added 517,000 jobs in January, and there was some key announcements from Disney and Facebook and Amazon with some layoffs. But what's your view of the job market? I, I, I don't know. It's a little bit suspect to me, and I, I hesitate, as you can hear in my voice. I never want to you know, have the conspiracy commentary, but I, I don't really believe jobs numbers across the board whenever I hear them. I always look at the participation rate. Right. And the problem with the country now is the participation rate is dropping off a cliff. And we have young workers that don't want to work anymore. So if they roll off those ranks, it, it gives a false narrative to what the jobs market is stating. I, I do believe that during the pandemic, we pumped up consumer with so much added money in their wallets and their pocketbooks that there was a lot of spending on things that they wouldn't otherwise uh, be spending on because they couldn't leave the home anymore. So there was a lot of ordering in. There was a lot of even the, the services component. There was no services to be had. And then the later on you got in the cycle, then you you got to a place where they call it revenge travel now, where people just want to get out of the house and do something. But I don't want to say that it's not a strong economy because it is. If you go to restaurants, you still can't find tables at restaurants. If you look at the amount of ordering in that people do, that's still going on. People are still buying groceries. Granted, it's three or four times what they've been spending on eggs before. And also, the thing that's shocking to me, Ed, is that the number of people living paycheck to paycheck has increased by about eight or nine percent very recently. Yeah, and that's concerning. And then, but going back to groceries, you mentioned the increase in prices. Fed Chair Powell said that we're in a disinflationary process. And he believes that's begun. Do you agree with that? Are we starting to see inflation under control? I don't think it's under control yet. What I have a problem with is I always try to invest and be agnostic when I invest. And I don't like to find, I think you get into trouble when when you try to overlay your uh, preconceived notions. You know, when Powell came into that seat, he was confused at where inflation went. And he said, I I can't believe where inflation went. We're still in the process of trying to figure it out. And now he can't figure out how to keep control of inflation. So he's getting it from both sides. He took a lot of heat from the term transitory when he discussed inflation. When you look at a disinflationary environment, you can't help but see that that lumber prices were $1,500. And now they're a quarter of what they once were. When you look at oil, oil's come in uh, dramatically. So there's a lot of things that have come down, but housing prices are still elevated. Interest rates are elevated and they make that those costs a real burden for the consumer because if the if the mortgage rate was three and a half and now now it's six and a half, that doesn't help anybody buy a home. No one's going to sell a home because they can't replace that. It becomes a vicious cycle of replacement value. So I do see some areas where inflation has definitely come in. I think our supply chain, we have to figure out our supply chain around China. 
And President Trump was instrumental in bringing that to the fore. And, uh, you know, energy policy out of Europe, you got to work around Russia. He was uh, instrumental in that or bringing that to attention. So I think there's a lot of things that we can do as a country to bring that inflation number down, but there'd be short-term pain trying to figure out supply chain workarounds. And I, I see inflation coming down. Are we there yet? No, but I think there's a lag effect with the Fed. And the Fed has to be reminded of that daily because they're always slow to act and slow to stop acting. And then it takes time for whatever they do to have an impact on the market anyway. Exactly. I've heard people suggest that there's a year lag. I've heard people suggest there's a year and a half lag. What we do know for a fact is there is a lag. So I don't think it would be really out of context or out of reality to have the Fed pause or just keep rates where they're at. No one's saying that they have to cut. But why wouldn't you if you know these are supposed to be very cerebral people. They're supposed to be academics. So if they understand that you and I are talking about this and the, the, the mainstream America knows that there's a lag in what the Fed's doing, why wouldn't you pause? Why would you want to force the economy into a more aggressive recession? So what they've done, give that a chance to have some impact and slow down inflation. That's what you're suggesting. Yeah, that would that would make sense to me. And, you know, and, and everyone says, well, we've got to take our medicine now. Well, how do we know that the dose that the Fed gave us isn't enough to cure the, the sickness? And you do have to come into this with awareness that the supply chain from China was brought to a screeching halt. Right. We had a pandemic that we, we had a forced recession. Everything was forced to go to zero. So that was the first time in our lifetimes that we've ever had that occur. And if you have zero supply chain or a lag in supply chain coming out of China, then you know inflation is going through the roof. So all these things really have to get back into play before we make a real assessment as to where the inflation rate truly is right now. Do you have a thought as to whether the Fed is actually going to try to raise interest rates again one more step or two? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I, I am of the mindset that the Fed sees those numbers, Ed, ahead of time. And I know there's a little bit of knowledge that the Fed can see those job numbers 24 hours in advance, maybe not 48 hours in advance. But I don't think uh, Chair Powell would have spoken with the clarity that he had before that jobs number, just two days before that jobs number released, without knowing that it was going to be a blockbuster number. That's my conspiracy line on this podcast. You know, I think he already knew that. So the market has gone from a dynamic of they used to rally the market. Investors would rally the market uh, in the lag, in the void between when Fed, uh, when, when Chair Powell would speak. And now what they do is they sell the market off. And then when Chair Powell speaks, they rally the market because it's definitely coming to sound more dovish than hawkish lately. And even if we don't get a rate cut in 2023, I think he's really warmed up to the idea that we will be pausing or keeping rates static versus the continuation of this incline rates. Gotcha. And you said you were a student of politics and love that. But, you know, here in Florida, the mix of politics and economic boom 
based upon what we've seen leadership at the governor's office with Governor DeSantis. What do you make of the Florida boom in the last couple of years? Well, I, it's it's what I had said, uh, just a, 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 the next domino to what I had uh, mentioned before. Money always goes uh, to, to the easiest spot, and, and you want to go where there's low taxes, more freedom, and a better quality of life. And we've seen that from the mass exodus out of California and out of New York and going to states like Florida and Texas. It shouldn't be a real hard calculation to figure out. People want to go to where their money goes further, where their lifestyles are appreciated, where they have the freedom to do what they want to do. And I don't think that's out of the question, right? That's what people should want to do. And what I find pretty ironic is that people that love the politics of New York and of California seem to be moving to those places just as readily as conservatives or Republicans are moving to those places. But that's something that really sticks out to me. And Making those, you know, red states purple is not what Governor DeSantis would like. And I think he's done a, a fine job, a great job of attracting people, new residents who would like the lifestyle that Florida offers. Well, let me share with you the uh, latest headline from here was that we now have 400,000 more Republicans statewide as opposed to when President Obama was elected, when we had 300,000 more Democrats. So there's been a complete shift. And so a lot of the transplant, whether, whether New Yorkers or from the Northeast or even from out West, seem to be leaving their politics behind and, and registering Republican, or at least supporting DeSantis and his policies from a party registration standpoint. You know, it's an interesting stat. And, and I, I think uh, because your governor now is so outspoken, uh, the people that are moving in there sort of know what they're getting before they actually get down there. We've never really had governors that speak that, you know, off the cuff and that direct to the electorate. And, and I think that's probably the reason why you've seen, you've seen that flip happen. And, and remember, Florida is also known for where you go to retire, but I think it's really flipped to not where you retire. It's where you actually live. And where you work and where you want, want to work. And the pandemic had, had a lot to do with that. People are now being able to, to live where they want to live, not live where they have to. You know, I've been a product of New York where I attached myself to the floor of the stock exchange and I couldn't leave that floor of the stock exchange for my entire career. And with the pandemic now, it's allowed me, I do, I do CNBC spots from my office at home now. So I can do a CNBC spot if I were in Florida. I could do a CNBC spot if I were in California. I could do it wherever I want. That wasn't the case pre-pandemic. So I think that's probably a large portion of why you're getting that flip. And it's not just retirees who have softened in their political views. It's people who are actually living it, talking to talk and living it. So let me change the subject back to New York. New York took a little bit of a hit during the pandemic, but New York is New York. Is it coming back? And is there a different feeling now on the streets of New York about where New York is going and where it's been? Well, you know, I, I have the pleasure of going into New York when I want to and not going into New York when I don't want to. 
anybody, both sides of the aisle, would admit that there's more homelessness on the streets of New York. There's more crime. Just look at the stats, right? This is not something coming from Steve Grasso's brain. This is the reality of what the mayor is having to deal with now. You have a large portion of immigrants coming into New York, flooding the system, flooding the capabilities of the state and the city. You have homelessness that's out of control on the streets of New York. When you go into any of the more congested areas, the smell of marijuana is unbelievable. Ask anyone. Once again, ask a Democrat. Ask a liberal. The smell of marijuana is, is prevalent in any congested area. The crime rates are off the charts. And I don't think that people want to bring their families into a state like that or into a city like that. It gets back to if you're working a three-day work week, you get in, you get out, and you're preaching it to be in the suburbs after you leave. Yeah, it sort of reminds me, because I grew up in Brooklyn, it sort of reminds me back when it was a pre-Giuliani days, and it was a little different city then than after Giuliani. Absolutely. And, and my father-in-law, I have the privilege of being able to know a man who, who helped clean up New York under Giuliani. He was the chief of department for the NYPD. And he was instrumental in cleaning up. He and a person named Jack Maple, at the direction of Jack Maple, my father-in-law, Chief Adamone, was able to clean up Times Square. They made it a spot where families can enjoy little excursions on a day coming from outside the city. And you just don't have that now. And I think it's pretty sad. These things are cyclical. But the people of New York have to demand it or else nothing happens. Well, and they're losing some of the more wealthy folks and they're moving out of state. There was a big controversy, I think, between the mayor and the governor, Governor Hochul. She wanted those folks, if they wanted to move to Florida, have them move to Florida. But Mayor Adams said, wait a second, you know, they make up a large portion of our tax base. <laughs> so That's the funny thing about numbers. Numbers don't lie. Don't lie. Right? Right. You, you, you know, I, I've had the experience on both sides of it what the feel is and what the facts are. And and a lot of times, you know, I, I want to buy a stock sometimes and then I look at the facts that they can't make money and they, they will never make money. And then I don't buy that stock. So if states were treated like investments, like stocks, and they are to the large extent, people are going to start to weigh those optionalities as, is it a good investment for my family or a bad investment for my family? And when you can't attract People that are paying the bill, then no one eats dinner. And that's what's going on with these states. The people that were picking up the tab are picking up and leaving. And that's going to be a problem going forward for the future of a lot of these states. So lastly, because you're, uh, you're a political observer, we have 2024 coming up. How do you view uh, the major issues on 2024? Is the economy going to be a big part of that discussion or or we got to get diverted on other issues like education and some of the social issues that there seems to be lines drawn, say, between Governor Newsom out in California and Governor DeSantis here in Florida and some of those things. What are your thoughts? Uh, you know, Ed, it, what's really disheartening is not everyone gets to the polling area with the same outlook. And what's unfortunate is a school choice to me should trump every other aspect of social issues. If you can't send your children to a safe school where they can learn in a secure environment, then what are we all doing this for? 
And why are we invested in schools that don't perform well? So I think the large extent of it is it's bottom up when it comes to voting. All politics are local, as the saying goes. And if you can't give your citizens in the area that you're running in a real safe school to go to, then they're going to move. So I do believe social issues always get into the calculus. You know, for me, it's about taxes. It's about the security of the nation. There's a lot of things that I vote on, but I do believe that we should have school choice. And I think that's a real pivotal point where the Republicans should really come out strong on in these local areas. And that would really tip the needle because people will cross party lines for school choice. There's very few things that people cross party lines for. And if you tell somebody, given where I was born and partially raised in the Bronx, if you told my neighborhood, you can go to the best performing school and your tax dollars are just going to follow you, there's a lot of people that would cross party lines for it. So I'll share with you one thought. When Governor DeSantis ran the first time, he won Florida by 30,000 votes. It was a very close election. But he received 19% of African-American women, which is about 10, 11 points more than the norm. And it was all about school choice. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. And I'm glad that mirrors uh, what I said. I felt it for a long time. I've lived it. I've seen it. I've experienced it. And it's really not that hard to enact. And, and your governor has done a great job. So let's see where he winds up. In 2024, they've got Trump and him are the only ones that are drawing any sort of attention. And it's going to be interesting how this all flushes out, because we definitely have a lot of green between now and then. And as you said before, you put it perfectly. There's a lot of different things that might come into focus between now and then. And it'll be interesting to see the way the chips fall. Thank you, Steve, for spending time with us today. And thank you for your insights. I'm certain that uh, everybody listening will appreciate your experience and insights on a variety of these matters. Thank you so much. I appreciate that, Ed. It's been a pleasure on my side as well. Politics and Sunshine is a production of the Fort Lauderdale law firm Trip Scott, serving Florida and beyond for over 50 years. A reminder that this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute legal or professional advice. No user should act on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without obtaining proper legal or other professional advice specific to their situation. Please be sure to like and share this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time for another fresh edition of Trip Scott's Politics and Sunshine.